Thank you for leading us in that uh, incredibly powerful song. It is sobering to think that Jesus is our greatest treasure and a wellspring to our souls. Thank you for leading us, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 19. We've made our way to the book of Philippians where Paul is going to give us some reflections from his life and his ministry. We've seen him uh, thank the Philippians for their gift. This, what this note really is. It's a thank you letter that he wrote to a church that he helped start, a church he cared very deeply about. We've seen Paul encourage the Philippians to unity through a humble service of one another. We saw Paul talk about how Jesus is the preeminent example of the kind of humble service we're to have of one another. We've seen that though the end will come when every knee bows to Jesus and every tongue confesses he's Lord, between now and that time we're to work out our salvation. We're to uh, tap into the power that God is using to work in us for his will and work for his pleasure. We're to obey and submit our lives to him. But today, Paul's going to turn his, our attention to a little bit more about his ministry and about two key men that he's been working with as he's been ministering for the sake of the gospel. Now, one of the reasons I'm excited about this passage today is because I think it gives us a very uh, good picture about the human element of the ministry of the life of Paul. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think it's easy to think that these people we read about were superhuman Christians, that they were extraordinary in their faith and they were special or set apart in some way. But actually what we find in this passage is a pretty normal kind of correspondence between the Apostle Paul and this church. It really shows us that he was really a real person. It's not that Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus that we're about to read about were extraordinary people that had some special gifting. No, they were ordinary people just like you and me. But what we're going to see today is they've been captivated by an extraordinary Savior. And so as we watch these two men that Paul commends to the church at Philippi as examples, we will not only see that they're normal human beings just like you and I, saved by the grace of God, we will also see that there are some examples in their lives that Paul commends to you and I to consider as we walk with Christ today in 2017. So with all that in mind, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, verse 19, we read these words. I, this is Paul speaking, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not, the, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. 
Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord, church. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would remove distraction And God, that you would help us as we hear from you to not just be hearers of your word. Would you help us to be doers of your word as well? In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. This passage is kind of like I mentioned, giving us a window into the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And today in this passage, he's going to lift up two men that he's worked with very closely, that he wants to commend to the Philippians. I believe these men serve as examples that we're meant to consider following ourselves. And in each of their lives, there's something very specific I believe Paul is commending to us. Now, one of the reasons this is particularly important for our time as we work through the entire book of Philippians is I also believe Paul is not just holding these men up as general examples for us to consider in some kind of general way. I think he's lifting these men up in specific ways to tie them into points he's already made in the book of Philippians about how we're to live. So it's as if Paul's saying, look, I've been telling you that you're to rejoice in suffering, that you're to have a humble service of others. Let me show you two people who exemplify some of the things that I'm commending to you Philippians and to us as believers in 2017. The first person Paul is going to commend to you and to I is the, is the man he mentions here, Timothy. And he's going to commend to us Timothy's genuine concern for the Philippians. Look in your Bibles at verse 19 at how Paul sets this up. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul expresses his concern for the Philippians. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see them stand firm. And and he wants to send Timothy in part because he wants Timothy to come back and bring a report of what's happening in the church. Now, the reason Paul believes Timothy is the right man for this job It's because of what he tells us in verse 20. Notice your Bibles. Why, Timothy? Because I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. The key phrase that we need to see about Timothy's example to you and I is the phrase, his genuine concern. This is to be distinguished from 
the ministers of the gospel that Paul says seek their own interests. This is reminiscent, if you'll remember, of chapter one, where Paul talked about other people that are preaching Christ out of rivalry or out of jealousy. He says, that's not Timothy. Timothy's not a person who's talking about Jesus for what he can get out of it. Rather, Timothy has a genuine concern for the people knowing Christ. Said another way, Timothy is not concerned for what he can get from the Philippians. Rather, he has a genuine concern for the Philippians. Paul says this kind of reputation is warranted because he served with him as a father with a son. They've had close association together, and he knows that Timothy is this kind of person. I don't know about you, but it's pretty easy to tell if someone's coming around me just to get something from me. There's something about a person who approaches me with not a genuine concern for me and my soul, but it's really easy to see if somebody's just genuinely concerned for what they can get from me. I don't want to make too strong a point about this, but just in the spirit of transparency, as I've studied this passage of Scripture this week, I think this is why being a pastor is so challenging. Because I think there's a lot of times where people are coming to pastors for what they can get from them with little to no concern for them. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, why, why do pastors fall morally? Uh, even in our community, in the last five or six years, we've seen a lot of churches go through pastors falling morally, maybe in an area of purity or their marriage or with money. And what I'm here to tell you, church family, is that one of the reasons that's a challenge for pastoral ministry um, is because oftentimes pastors feel like they give and they give and they give, but there's nothing pouring into them. I don't say that to you because I want you to pity me this morning or, or feel bad for me because there's a part of me that's, that, that recognizes that's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to give and give and minister and pray and encourage. But we have to recognize that part of what we're to be as a body of Christ is not concerned just for what we can get from people, but the kind of genuine concern Paul's talking about here is one in which we are concerned for people's souls. You and I are called to model our lives after what Timothy is exemplifying for us, which says, I'm not concerned primarily with my interests or what I can get from you. I'm primarily concerned in the interest of Christ. This is also reminiscent of what he talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where he tells us, don't look out just for yourselves and your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. In humility, count other people more significant than yourselves. This is what Timothy exemplifies for us. Now, that nature of that concern that genuine concern is an interest in Jesus Christ. We get this through deduction because look at verse 22, or excuse me, verse 21. He says, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, what we can determine is there is an interest that we should have for Jesus in the life of people. In other words, a genuine concern looks like me being concerned genuinely for your standing 
with Jesus Christ. We're concerned for where people stand with Christ. This is one of the reasons why we talk every week here about having a Christ-centered identity and a Christ-centered influence. A genuine concern for somebody's soul means I'm genuinely concerned about them finding their identity in Jesus. That means their peace, their purpose, their sense of power, the pattern they're following in their lives all come from Christ. It's a beautiful song Katie just sang to us, wasn't it? My worth is not in what I own. My value doesn't come from my stuff. My value is fixed to what Jesus has done for me. When we're genuinely concerned about someone, we're not concerned primarily for what they can do for us. We really care about where they stand with Christ. We care about also them developing an influence for Jesus. We're there serving others in the way Jesus has served us. Let me tell you why this is so important. When you and I embrace this kind of genuine concern for people, it frees us to love people deeply. The reason this genuine concern that Timothy exemplifies is so crucial for us is it frees me to really love people the way Jesus calls me to love them, in which I don't treat them like they're an ATM. You guys know what ATMs are? We still use those? ATM, where it's like there's these numbers on their chest and I'm pushing these buttons and I want to get something from them. No. Genuine concern means I love you and care about you whether you never give anything to me at all. This is part of what the beauty of grace does in our lives. You see, before we come to know Christ, we're bound up with all these agendas and these competing desires. We're bound up with these conflicting modes of manipulation and cajoling because we want to get things from people because before Christ, we think we're the main character. Before I come to know Jesus, people are just a means to me accomplishing what I want for my life. But when Jesus saves me, when he redeems me from all those competing agendas, he gives me the singular focus of loving him and loving his people. This is why in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to what is ahead, I strive for the upward call of Christ. You and I, because of the grace of God, are freed to love people deeply because our concern is not for what we can get from them, because our concern is for their everlasting soul. So let me just ask you a question. Who are you genuinely concerned about today? Who are the people in your life you're not looking to get anything from? You just love them because you know Jesus frees you to love them that way. See, the reason oftentimes we think we need to get things from people is because we forget that we have all we need in Jesus. The reason I don't have to treat you like an ATM where I push buttons and get something from you is because what I have in Christ is an incredible treasure and a wellspring, like we sang about a minute ago.
Who are those people in your life that you're genuinely concerned about? Maybe it's your kids, those of you that are parents or grandparents. Maybe you're concerned about your kids or your grandparents or your, kid, your grandkids. It's late. I'm getting... You second service people catch me when I'm on the down nav here. Your children or your grandchildren, I think is what I meant to say. Let me tell you why that's so important. It is so easy to think my kids exist for me. It is so easy for me to think my kids are here to elevate me, to make me look good through their academics or their athletics or their behavior, so that when they don't act right, notice I didn't say if they don't act right, I said when they don't, it's very easy to get incredibly frustrated with our children, isn't it? And the reason I can get frustrated with them is if I'm not careful, I'm frustrated at them. Because they're not giving me what they're supposed to give me. But when I recognize that I'm here for them, they're not here for me. I'm here to serve them and love them. When they get frustrated and angry and they act out, I see that not as a distraction, but I see it as an opportunity to speak into their little souls. We have one member of our family who will remain nameless, Seth, who... Um, he's like his dad. A lot of things come real easy to him. But when something doesn't come easy to him, he gets super frustrated. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They, they, they just get kind of frustrated, and, and we're doing piano now. We love piano. He's learning piano. It's going great. Zach's his teacher. It's fantastic. Zach's the greatest teacher in the whole world, by the way. But there are moments when I'm sitting there with Seth, and we're talking about piano, and he's getting frustrated. He's getting upset. It's very easy when I see him like that to go, do you know what kind of day I've had? Do you know what my life is like as a pastor? It's almost like I'm thinking in the back of my brain, he's waiting all day. He's been hatching this plot at 545. I'm going to have a meltdown and blow up dad's day, right? My child's not thinking that. He really is frustrated. His little soul is hurt or burdened or frustrated by what's going on. And when I respond to frustration with frustration, I act like he's here to give me something. But when I can get down on his eye level and say, buddy, let me talk to you about your heart and why you're doing this. Let's have a conversation about why you're acting. When, when I respond with gentleness rather than wrath, doesn't it turn away? A strong word. And so when I, when I pour into my child that way, I'm realizing he's not here for me. I'm here to be genuinely concerned about his soul. Now, I am not here to tell you that I always get that right. Do not think that Shelley and Spencer Plumley always get that right with our children, but I can tell you this. We are working hard hard, hard to remember my kids and the people in my life are not here for me. I'm here to genuinely be concerned about their soul. And what an opportunity when he's in that moment. Who are the people in your life that you're genuinely concerned about? There are people outside your family, people that you know that do not know Christ, that you genuinely care about their souls. 
Can I tell you one of the signs of genuine concern for people? Is you pray for them. Could, could you take me to the places in your home where you get on your knees and you beg God to move in some of these people's lives? One of the more moving moments for me as a pastor is when I sit with people in my office and we weep for people because we're genuinely concerned about their souls. When's the last time you wept for someone because you were genuinely concerned about their standing with Jesus? What are their names? What Timothy calls you and I to is a kind of genuine concern for the souls of the people God has put in our lives, not for what we can get from them, but a genuine concern for their standing with Jesus. The second person that Paul puts forward to us for an example to consider is Epaphroditus. While Timothy was familiar to the Philippian church because of his ministry with Paul, Epaphroditus was one of their own. In fact, listen to how Paul describes Epaphroditus in verse 25. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. You see, apparently Epaphroditus was the one who carried the financial gift from the church at Philippi in modern-day Greece all the way to Rome. Epaphroditus was also the one, we believe, who after having written the book of Philippians, Paul sent it with Epaphroditus. He was the one who carried the letter back to the Philippian church, and they read it there in his hearing. But the specific thing I want you to see in Epaphroditus' life is his willingness to suffer for the gospel of Christ. Because what this passage makes clear is that on the journey from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus became dangerously ill. Listen to how Paul describes this illness in Epaphroditus' life. Verse 27, Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me." If Timothy's example was a genuine concern for their souls, the the example Epaphroditus puts forward is a willingness to suffer and risk for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was willing to bring this financial gift to Paul even at the risk and loss of his life. And Paul is sending him back now because he doesn't want the Philippians to worry about him. What I believe we see in Epaphroditus' life that is commendable to us is an all-in approach to serving Christ. Epaphroditus put himself in a position in which God was the only one who could deliver him and save him. This is the key phrase we see back in verse 27. Notice in your Bibles, he says, Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. See, Epaphroditus lived his life in such a way where the mercy and kindness of God 
was the only explanation for his life. He laid his life on the line for the sake of the gospel in such a way that the only reason you could explain his existence and his ministry was the power of God. I believe what's commended to us here is the kind of service of Jesus that says, Jesus, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to step out of my comfort zone and obey you so that you are the only explanation for my life. I'm going to serve you in such a way that people will look at me and say, there's no other explanation for that guy's life other than the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is a lot of the way God works as we see it in the scriptures. There's often times where God wants to make it abundantly clear that he wants his people to recognize that they should live in such a way that he's the only explanation for their lives. One such example was in the life of a man named Gideon. Gideon was a judge. He was living in a time in the nation of Israel when they were facing cruel oppressors. A little commercial Next year, we will go through the book of Judges. We'll work through that Old Testament book. God comes to Gideon and says to him, I want you to raise an army, and I want you to go and fight these cruel oppressors who numbered in the hundreds of thousands. Some of you may be familiar with the story because Gideon puts together a a decent force, respectable group of people, 30-some-odd thousand soldiers. But God comes to him and says something pretty curious. He says, Gideon, you've got too many, too many soldiers here. Now, at that moment, I'm no military strategist, but Gideon was facing 10 to 1 odds. I don't know that I would have thought that as too many, but here was God's reasoning. He says, Gideon, you've got too many because if you win, you'll take the credit for it. So through a process, God brings his forces down from 30,000 all the way down. Anybody remember the number? to 300. And with 300, he says, now you're ready. You're ready to go fight hundreds of thousands of people because when I deliver you, the only explanation for your victory will be the power and the might and the glory of God. In church, I think that's what Paul's commending to us about Epaphroditus. He's saying, look, it wasn't that he was special, It wasn't that he had it all together and he was some superhuman person. No, instead, Epaphroditus served Jesus and put himself out there in such a way that God's power and might and glory was the only explanation for his life. So let me ask you, church, are you living and serving Jesus in such a way that he's the only explanation for your life? Are you serving him in such a way that people look and say, there is no other explanation for that person's life other than the grace and mercy of Christ? How about in your marriage, those of you that are married? Is your relationship to your spouse reflecting the love of Christ in such a way that people look and say, there is no other explanation of those two people loving one another that much and in that way than Jesus Christ? He's the only reason they can do that. How about in your service in your church? Are there some of us that are willing maybe to step out of our comfort zones and serve in different capacities in the body of Christ in a way that says, Jesus, I don't know that I have the ability 
to do this, but there's a need and I have this desire, so I'm, I'm going to serve you and I'm going to put myself out there and trust that you're going to work through me. How about in your money and your stewardship of your resources? Is there a, a sacrificial nature to your giving and your investment in the kingdom of Christ that says, I'm going to invest sacrificially, Jesus, and trust you with the results? One of the great challenges we have in this particular community, so I'm talking about the lake area, is we put a premium on comfort. I don't know if it's the water we drive by every day or something that's in the air or just the general nature of the industry here, but it's very easy for comfort to kind of become the primary way we view the world. I make decisions of whether I will or won't do things based on what kind of imposition it's going to put in my life. And I just want you to understand what Jesus is calling us to through the example of Epaphroditus is a kind of service that says, I understand that conviction and comfort probably are not always going to go together. I understand that serving Jesus faithfully oftentimes is going to take me out of my comfort zone so that Jesus is the only explanation for my life. Now, here's the question I want to close with this morning. Why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul lifting up these two men as examples? Because, I mean, he's already given us the best example in Jesus. Why spend time talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus? I think the answer to that question is found by a little closer examination of verse 29, okay? Look back at your Bibles at verse 29 and listen to a little of Paul's rationale for giving us these two men as examples. He's talking about Epaphroditus. He says, so receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Paul says and commends these men as examples worth following. And he even goes so far as to say, you should honor them. That is, you should give them a sense of value and esteem them because of their service to Christ. Now let me be clear what I think is happening here. I don't think that he's robbing glory from God or trying to diminish the worship that God's do. Rather, he's acknowledging God's work in and through these men. He's carving out a role for God's use of Christ-like examples that we're to follow. You see, part of God's plan is to not only save and redeem us, but to redeem us in such a way that we serve as examples that other people could follow and see Jesus. This is why Paul and other places will say, follow me as I follow Christ. This is part of the redemptive work of God in repairing what's known as the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, the Bible says that God makes humanity in His image. Now that means a number of things. But one of the things that it emphasizes is that you and I are to be God's representatives revealing his rule and reign in this world. You see, when Genesis 1 was written in the kind of culture in which the Bible is written, they didn't have the geographical distinctives that we have now that separate one territory from another. 
You know, we have maps, we have globes. My life group this morning, we talked about GPS. We've got these tools that help us make sense of where we are. But in the New Testament era, they didn't have those kinds of things. So the way you would tell where you were is by looking at what images or statues were there. You see, a king or a ruler would put images of himself in his realm showing people who was in charge. So if you walked into a particular village, you wouldn't get your map out to try to figure out where you were. You would look around for images of who was in charge. This also showed up, by the way, on their money. On their coins would be a a face or an image of the person whose realm you were in. And as you engaged in commerce and trade, it was meant to remind you you're under the rule and reign of this particular king. Now here's the point, church. You and I are meant to be redemptively images reminding people of Jesus' rule and reign in this world. You and I are meant to be reminders and markers as God repairs us, as God restores us from our sin. We're meant to show and reveal that Jesus is ruling and reigning in this world. What that means is that you and I are meant to be people, examples, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, that if people looked at us and followed us, they would find and see Jesus. This is the idea that I want you to take home this morning, summing up this whole passage just in one statement. When believers are followed, people should find Jesus. When people follow us, if if we could work it out where somebody followed you every moment of your entire day, some of you that are moms know what that's like. Your kids do that every day. They followed you every moment of every day, could see you when nobody else sees what you're doing. That if they followed and tailed you and you were able to give a verbal explanation for the things that you were doing, it would point them to Christ. This makes sense in other areas of our lives, right? If I, if I don't know where I'm going and I'm trying to find my way, one of the best ways I can get to my destination safely is to follow somebody who does know where they're going. I follow that person, and they lead me to safety. I experienced this firsthand this past March when I had the privilege of going to the nation of Israel for 10 days. I was there for 10 days. I would highly commend that trip to all of you that know Christ because there was something pretty powerful about just remembering that Jesus is a real person, that he really lived and walked this earth and died for us. But in one of the more um, acute moments, one of the, I would call it, fun moments of the trip, you go... Uh, to see the birthplace of Christ, where we think Jesus was born, the traditional site. But that site is in Palestinian-controlled territory. I don't know how many of you are geopolitical experts, but it's not exactly a calm situation over there, okay? I felt safe the whole time I was there. I never felt threatened in any way. But when you go into Palestinian-controlled territory, you're on the bus, and your Israeli tour guide gets off, And you go through barbed wire and walls and this kind of checkpoint, and you pick up your Palestinian guide. And you have a new guide that takes you through that particular part of of the Holy Land. When I got off the bus in Palestinian-controlled territory, you immediately feel out of place. 
I immediately felt out of place because as soon as I got off the bus, there was this blaring loud call to prayer coming from the Muslim mosques there, right? Typically, I don't hear that when I wake up in central Missouri, but that's one of the first things I heard when I got off the bus. I didn't have a map. Uh, I wasn't going to pay for the data to use my GPS because it was crazy expensive over there. And so the only thing I had to make sure I got from the bus to the site we were going to and back was my guide. And I don't know if you've seen guides. They have these little flags, right, where you can look and follow them so you don't get lost. And so that's what I did. We, our group followed this person. And sure enough, she led us safely from our bus all the way to the traditional site where we believe Jesus was born and back very safely. It was an incredible experience. Now, here's my point in mentioning that story. We are meant to be guides for people in this world. We're meant to be guides, just like that tour guide who's leading people through our example, through our words, to Christ. Our lives are meant to be this huge flashing sign that point people to Christ. So here's the question I want to ask you. If someone followed you, would they find Jesus? If someone followed your life and you were able to give some explanation, because the gospel always requires words, if you were able to give that explanation, would they see Christ? One of the benefits we have as a church is Jesus left for us a process to help us stay on course. And one of the tools in that process was a meal that we observed called the Lord's Supper. This meal, I'm going to ask our musicians to come on up at this time. We're going to conclude our service by looking at that. But this meal is not only an opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us. The Bible also makes it clear that it's an opportunity to reflect to consider, if someone followed me, would they find Jesus Christ? So for some of us this morning, as we're taking this meal, the response may be to, to just have some time of confession and repentance of sin in your life. If I can talk to the parents in the room just a little bit longer, I know I can have hung out a little bit longer than I intended to in that illustration, but um, some of us may need to just repent of how we're viewing people. That we're viewing people for what we can get from them rather for a genuine concern for their souls. But I also know there may be some of you here today that do not know Jesus. You don't know the Jesus we're talking about, singing about. And so what we hope happens during this meal is that you are able to consider what Jesus has done for you. That he offered his life as a sacrifice for your sins. That he rose again to look at you and say, if you repent and trust Christ, you can be forgiven. And so our prayer for you is while we won't have a formal time of response, that you're able to respond right where you are to the gospel and say, Jesus, I need you. But because this meal is for those of us that know Christ, if if you don't know Christ, we're going to ask you not to take this with us. Not because we don't love you. We do love you. We're so glad you're here. But we believe this meal should be reserved for people who know Jesus Christ. Parents, this is a great opportunity to remind your children if they do not know Christ, if they're sitting there with you, don't let them take this with you. Use it as an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Saw a family do that in the first service. Kid had his hand out. They said, nope. 
You're not a Christian. Not a Christian yet. It's a great opportunity to talk in a loving way about what it means to follow Christ. Our prayer for us as a church is that we indeed would be a people who are following Jesus, and as we follow him, others can find him. My prayer is that as we take this meal, we would have opportunity to reflect on where we stand in that. Would you please pray with me, church?